Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, also in the first year of Darius, or Darius, the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Also the kings of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have a dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years, they shall join forces for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But, shall, but she shall not retain the power of her authority and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her and with them who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place who shall come with an army into the fortress of the king of the north and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdoms of the king of the south and shall return to his own land. However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through, and he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him. And the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hands of the enemy. And this is the, only the first 11 verses. The Lord's angel is going to give a detailed description of the near future and the far future. We've already learned there's a war in heaven. There are supernatural forces at work. There's a war in heaven and there's a war in the human heart. Only God can see the future with such specificity. The Lord's going to give up sweeping panorama of Israel's future. From the 5th century B.C. to the 1st century B.C. Most Bible scholars call the time from the end of the 5th century, beginning in the 4th century, the Greek Empire, down to the Roman Empire. They call them the silent years. They call them the silent years because prophecy comes to a halt. 
But God, by his Holy Spirit, is going to give a rather detailed explanation of things that are happening in the 5th century, the 4th century, the 3rd century, the 2nd century, and the 1st century. The Lord's plans for the kingdoms and nations and individuals are unshakable. And because God knows the future completely, you should rest assured that he knows your future completely. Because he knows everything about everything intimately. He knows about your intimate circumstances. The events of this chapter are long over except for the closing verses at the end of the chapter in verses 40 through 45. The Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and the Syrian and Egyptian rulers who I'm going to be talking about are for the most part unknown, obscure, unfamiliar. The only reason why I know it is because I'm a geek. And because I collect coins, I want coins of the Bible that represent all of these little emperors and all of their intrigues. And so I have spent a great deal of my life studying the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. The prophet Daniel learns from an angel that there are four Persian kings that must arise in verses 1 and 2. Then there's going to come a mighty king from Greece in verses 3 and 4. The mighty king is going to forge a vast empire in a short time. And the empire is not going to pass to his posterity in verse 4. The, the empire is going to become divided and fragmented into four parts. And two of those parts are going to play a pivotal role in Israel's future. The angel is going to refer to the kings of the south and the kings of the north. What you need to know is that the kings of the south cover the area of Egypt and the kings to the north are going to cover half of Anatolia or what's modern day Turkey, Syria, and then what used to be the Persian and the Babylonian empires. I think, James, that we have a map, and you can, I can just show you the map real quick, and we're going to come back to the map. If you look to the south, you see Egypt. If you look to the north, you're going to see the kings of the north, the kings of the south, and, and, the, and the, the Seleucid Empire, or King Seleucus. Now, again, why, why is it called the king of the north and the king of the south? Because sandwiched in between those two kingdoms is what's known in verse 16 as the glorious land or the beautiful land. If you just slip ahead just for a moment in verse 16, it says, But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will. No one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious or the beautiful land with destruction in his power. The beautiful land, the glorious land is the holy land. This is the place that God set aside for the children of Israel, but it would also be the place where the Messiah must come. And so, Israel's future 
is going to be marked by constant battle and intrigue. There are powerful forces, both natural and supernatural, with mixed motives. In other words, to keep the children of Israel out of the land. In the previous chapter, we learned that there were supernatural beings, angels at war with one another. And it would appear that there are certain supernatural beings that want to prevent the children of Israel from returning to the land and fulfill the messianic prophecies, just like there are supernatural forces in your life that are trying to thwart God's plan. Destroy God's will. Ruin your life. Ruin your marriage. Ruin the future that God has planned for you. The chapter contains no less than 38 fulfilled prophecies. The prophecies are going to unfold quickly. Four Persian kings. Verse 2. The war of the fourth king with the king of Greece, verse 2. The rise and fall of Alexander the Great, verses 3 and 4. The division of his empire into quarters or fourths, verse 4. The eventual alliance between the kings of the north and the kings of the south, in verse 6. The Egyptian plunder of Syria, in verse 8. The unsuccessful retaliation of Syria, in verse 9. The civil war that's going to take place later in the chapter, in verse 14. The Syrian occupation of the glorious land, the beautiful land, the land that was going to be the place where God must of necessity send the Messiah, the desecration by the Syrian king in verses 31 and 32, the Maccabean revolt in verse 32. And so woven in the fabric of this prophetic narrative, you're going to see three reoccurring human traits. Human wealth in verse 2, human will in verse 3, human war in verse 11. So we've got two things, just like we have a supernatural war taking place between the forces of good and evil. There are supernatural things at work, but make no mistake about it. The Bible says that you have the ability to choose and choose otherwise. And some things you're going to choose are going to be healthy. And some things are not going to be so healthy. God warns you and says there are consequences for the choices that you make. Please make good choices. God honoring choices. So again, this passage of scripture is going to be like well, let me just go for it. Here's the four Persian kings. Look what it says in verse 1. Also in the first year of King Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Who's speaking? It's the angel from chapter 10. In verse 21 it says, But I will tell you what is noted in the scriptures of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Really, the thought continues in chapter 11, verse 1. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And then it says, and now I'm going to tell you the truth. This is the angel. He's still speaking. 
Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Now, like I said, most Bible scholars place verse 1 with the last verse of the angel's comment in chapter 10. Remember, we learned there's a heavenly war. There's a war that's directed. The war is directed towards the princes of Persia and later the princes of Greece. Why? Because there's supernatural things at work as God's plan begins to unfold and Persia and Greece are going to play the most important role in Israel's future. Each of these nations are going to exercise a certain power and control over the people of Israel. Again, there seems to be strong supernatural forces at work making every effort to make sure God's plan and God's will and God's purposes are accomplished. What does that mean to you? There are supernatural forces at work. There are invisible forces at work making sure that God's plans and purposes are accomplished in your life. Some take the form of these supernatural beings, but some of the invisible powers that are at work are the invisible powers inside of your own heart. Now, the first year of Darius the Mede coincides with the first year that Cyrus makes the decree for the Jews to leave, to restore <clears throat> and rebuild Jerusalem, this angel is tasked with the job to confirm and strengthen the king in his decision to let the Jews go. In other words, God is at work when Daniel was praying for the repentance and the restoration of God's people in chapter 9, verses 22 through 27. I'm left with the impression that the Persian powers may have been waffling in allowing the people to return to the land. In other words, it could be that the Persian king was thinking, should I let him stay or should I let him go? Just like the old song, should I let him stay or should I let him go? Should I stay or should I go now? So the king is thinking, I have all of this wealth and all of this power and all of these people. And the Jewish people are smart people, innovative people. Should I let him go? And apparently this angel is strengthening him in order for him to do what God wants him to do. God is at work when Daniel is praying. God is at work when this king is wondering whether or not to let the people of Daniel go. He said, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. That word strengthen translates a Hebrew word, chesek. It's a word, it's a primitive word in its root form. It means to seize or fasten or repair or support. It's as if you see something getting ready to break, give way, and you reinforce it. So it means 
It can be translated, be strong or courageous. It was used in the Old Testament to describe human beings and human strength to overpower and overcome another human being. But it was also used of supernatural beings that would come upon a human being in order to strengthen them. It's used to describe Samson's supernatural strength in Judges 16, 28 to overcome his enemies. It's the same word that's used by God to Joshua when he says, be strong and of good courage. And it's where you need something more than just a phrase. You need a supernatural enabling because your body's weak and your heart is broken. And you remember before where the angel said to Daniel, peace, be strong. Again, I suspect that there may have been a necessity for this angel to work. We're given a glimpse of how angels intervene and strengthen human beings in points of temptation and weakness. The angel reminds Daniel in verse 2, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth. And by the way, remember what we've already learned. Where do you go to find the truth. And remember in chapter 10, verse 21, at the end of the verse, I'm going to tell you what's noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except for Michael. The source of truth, the source of authority is the word of God. All of your life, you are going to be inundated with competing interests. They're going to tell you that human opinion is what matters most, or a scientific opinion, or this opinion, or that opinion. Christians aren't anti-scientific. And Christians certainly are people who have strong opinions about a lot of things. But there's only one source of information that will always be correct. And that's the word of God. And there's only one thing that the Bible says that provides a sufficient support. And that's the person of Jesus. According to the Bible, Jesus provides a sufficient salvation. Sufficient to forgive sin. Sufficient to reconcile you to God. And so Christians are people who believe in the truth. And so this revelation is going to take you through the reign of Cyrus, which is at the, at the same time contemporary with Darius the Mede. There are 13 Persian kings from the time of Cyrus to the fall of Persia. And so people have said, well, wait a minute. It says that there's four kings. But according to history, there are 13 kings so how do we resolve what appears to be a contradiction? Is the Bible not true? Some suggest that the number four represents the totality of the rulers. Much more likely, it represents Cyrus and the three immediate successors who are literally the offspring of this king. 
So there are three Persian kings, Cambyses, who rules from 530 to 522 BC, Pseudo-Smyrtus, 522 BC, Darius or Darius, Histopses, 522 to 486. Now, I don't need to tell you all about these rulers, but what the text says, a fourth far richer shall arise. Who is this king? It's Xerxes. He's also known as Ajawaris. Xerxes rules from 486 to 465 BC. And the defeat of Xerxes at Salamis, which is a very famous war, sets up this Greek-Persian conflict that's going to take place over a 150-year period. It's going to culminate with the rise of Alexander the Great. Now, we're told by the text, by his strength and through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece in verse 2. This king is going to use his power and wealth and authority to wage war against the kingdom of Greece. And again, this is exactly what happens. There's a king, his name is Ajawaris. He's also known as Xerxes. For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, he's talked about in the book of Esther. He is the king who will be the king when Esther becomes the queen. Xerxes is going to launch a great campaign against Greece from 481 to 479 BC. Let me put it in perspective for you. He amasses an army of 200,000 men. He amasses a navy with hundreds of ships that he gathers from all over his empire. John Whitcomb explains, quote, Xerxes desperately sought to avenge the humiliating defeat by his father, Darius I, at the hands of the Greeks during the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC. Those of you who are unfamiliar with the, the battle, this is the one where the Persians and the Greeks are fighting against each other, and one person has to run 26 miles in order to warn his companions, hence the name Marathon. You know that name as a, from Marathon Runners, but it comes from that point in history. His army is defeated. The Persian army is defeated north of Athens at Plataea in 479. His navy is smashed at Salamis to the west of, west of Athens. Quote, this king was quite willing to sell Haman the lives of the Jews in his realm for 10,000 talents of silver. He was a king of unbridled sensuality, ambition, and pride, paved the way for the downfall of the Persian Empire. John Phillips is writing this. John Phillips says, quote, For years this king kept Asia in turmoil as he stirred his vast realm against Greece, unquote. So no king after Xerxes would ever be powerful enough to ever successfully penetrate Greece. Quote, James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. And where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain, unquote. 
And this is part of the challenge that we have as human beings. How do I know if this is a spiritual, supernatural, demonic presence at work? How do I know if it's a supernatural, spiritual, benevolent work of the Holy Spirit strengthening me, helping me, to, to go forward, how do I know if these are invisible desires inside of my heart that's trying to keep me from God's perfect will? I'm going to suggest to you that both powers are present. There are invisible forces in the spirit world. There are invisible forces inside of your heart. And look at the mighty king of Greece. Look at verses 3 and 4. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, the kingdom shall be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. This is Alexander the Great. He comes on the scene 336 to 323 BC. For those of you who have been following along in our study in the book of Daniel, I told you that Alexander's father was named Philip. Philip became the wealthiest man in Macedon. He acquired such wealth that he hired the smartest man in the world to tutor his son. That man's name was Aristotle. Those of you who are familiar with Greek philosophy know that Aristotle was taught by a guy named Plato. And Plato was taught by a guy named Socrates. So Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, invest in Alexander. He will conquer the world in less than a decade. He will control all of the land from Macedonia through Greece, the Anatolian Peninsula, which is modern-day Turkey, Syria, Egypt, Babylonia, Persia. He will press forward even to the river Indus, to India. He will defeat Darius III in a series of battles between 334 and 331 BC. He will die in Babylon in 323. And scholars have given a number of different reasons for his death. This source it's, it's called Eyewitness to History. It says, quote, the exact cause of Alexander's death is unknown. Historians have debated the issue for centuries, attributing his death to poison, to malaria, to typhoid fever, to getting drunk and pneumonia. What is agreed is that the Macedonian king dies early in June 323 BC. He suffers a high fever that lasts 10 days. And I've already told you, when he's on his deathbed, his generals surround him and say, who shall get the kingdom? And he says, give it to the strong. What you may not know is they took his body and they encased it in beeswax. They took all of the beeswax that they could find and they literally embalmed his body put it in a golden coffin and dragged it from Babylon to Alexandria in the north of Egypt where they built an impressive mausoleum and then Alexandria is going to become the most important port in the ancient world. So Alexander's given dominion. 
He does what he wants. Look what the text says, according to his will. It reprises the prophecy that we already know in Daniel chapter 8. The vision in verses 5 through 8 of a goat with a notable horn, which grows four more horns. Alexander's birth is prophesied, verse 3. His rule and dominion prophesied. His will, his indomitable will. And so in this passage, we see this mysterious blend of what? God's sovereignty. And what else? Human capacity and will. In God's sovereignty, there is the capacity for people to act and make choices. And it would seem that self-will is powerful and volatile and consequential. Lucifer will exercise free will. People ask me on my radio program, if God's such a smart God, why did he make the devil? And the right answer is God didn't make the devil. He made a perfect angel named Lucifer with this amazing capacity, beauty, and ability. And the angel makes a choice. And it's going to result in judgment. By the way, if you're interested in that, it's found in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Those of you who are familiar with the Bible know about Adam and Eve. You know about their disobedience in the garden. God didn't make human beings wicked, cruel, and selfish. He made them with this strange combination of talent and gift and ability to know him and to love him. And then human beings made a very bad choice. And so Satan and humanity suffer because of the disobedience. The Bible's repeated testimony is that human beings are vulnerable to self-will. Self-importance, Galatians chapter 6, verse 5. Self-righteousness, Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Self-pity, Psalm 37. Self-seeking, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. We are at risk. And so, what was Alexander's will? He wanted to invade Persia. Why did he want to invade Persia? For all the sorrow that Persia had heaped upon the Greek people, perpetuated since the time of Xerxes in 486 to 465 BC. How long can human beings hold a grudge? An infinite amount of time. There are people who hate each other. And they've forgotten why. All they know is that their mother and father and their mother's mother and father hated so-and-so. Alexander's a shooting star. Like all dictators, there's a rise and there's a fall in verse 4. His kingdom is broken up. It's divided to the four winds of heaven. The prophecy indicates his posterity. That means his blood relatives will play no significant role in the future kingdom. Alexander's only known son was killed in a plot. He had an illegitimate son that he named Hercules, who was his patron God, if you will, you laugh, but it's not that Hercules. But he names his son 
in honor of Hercules, who was not recognized by the Diadochi. The Diadochi is a word that was used in the Greek culture to describe the successors. Those successors included Cassander, who would get Macedonia and Greece, Lysimachus, who would get Thrace and Asia Minor, Seleucus, Syria and Babylon, Ptolemy, the Levant, or what you and I call Israel or Palestine, and Egypt, the land bridge that links Anatolia to Egypt. And so none of these successors are blood relatives. Hercules is murdered by Polycerecon, along with his mother, Barsini, who was Alexander's former mistress. Alexander's mother was murdered. His sister, Cleopatra of Ipurus, was murdered within 15 years of his death. Cleopatra is a Greek name. Cleopatra is going to be a name that's going to be exported to Egypt. And the famous Cleopatra that most of you are familiar with is not going to be Cleopatra number two or three or four. She's going to be Cleopatra number seven. And so, literally, within 15 years of Alexander's death, none of his immediate family remain alive. Do you know what this means for you? Do you know, are you trying to tell me that the prophecy was literally fulfilled? Yes. You mean the first prophecy was literally fulfilled? Yes. The second? Yes. The third? Yes. The fourth? Yes. When you go through the chapter, you're going to go, check, check, check. You, are you telling me the Bible's really true? Yes. This is what I'm trying to tell you. This is what this Bible study is all about. Gleason Archer, a very famous scholar, writes, quote, The infant son of Alexander III, the great, was Alexander IV, born of the Persian princess Roxana, from the famous 70s song. <laughs> Kept under Cassander's custody, he was re re removed by murder in 310 BC. His uncle, Philip Aridius, now Philip Aridius, I'm going to leave... Gleason Archer, just for a moment, was Alexander the Great's half-wit, half-brother. He goes on. He was the illegitimate brother of Alexander III and mentally deranged. He was assassinated in 317 BC. There were no descendants to succeed Alexander. The prediction not to go to his descendants found fulfillment. The four ruthless, powerful generals named Above, that's Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy, engineered the partition of the empire. Four kingdoms literally fulfilled. Now we go to the kings of Egypt and Syria. Look what it says in verse 5. Also the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes. And he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years they will join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But he shall not retain the power of her authority. Neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up and those who brought her with him who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. Now let's pause for a moment. Before there was dynasty, Dallas, Knott's Landing, Peyton Place, there were the kings of Syria. This is like 
whatever my Spanish-speaking friends, we, we have what's called telenovelas. Telenovelas are dramatic Spanish films full of passion, intrigue, love, murder, and death. And this passage would make Dynasty Dallas, Knott's Landing, and Peyton Place blush. The Bible doesn't conceal the broken nature of humanity. People are broken. In this passage, the angel lays out this brief but detailed account of these future kings. The north, Syria. The south, Egypt. The angel describes an alliance between Egypt and Syria in verses 5 and 6. The alliance is going to disintegrate and the two kings are going to go to war with one another in a series of confrontations between verses 7 and 20. So again, why does the Bible and this prophecy focus on these events? Because God's eye is on Israel. Israel is the place where the fulfillment must take place. Israel is the place where the prophecies have to come to pass. Israel is the place that God is going to send his Messiah. Israel is the place where Jesus is going to be born and Jesus is going to be raised. There's going to be a temple there. All of the things that you know in the New Testament are going to be preceded by all of these things that you're reading right now. Because again, the king of the north and the king of the south are the ones who are going to provide the most amount of information as the culture and the language and the circumstances are going to unfold when we come to the first century. So, the notable kings are Ptolemy I Soter, which means savior, and Seleucus Nicator. He is the king of the north. Ptolemy is the first satrap of Egypt in 323 to 305. He will then become king after the death of Alexander. He will proclaim himself king. He will acquire the entire part of the continent that you and I call the Nile Delta, and he will push it as far as he can possibly push it. Seleucus Nicator is appointed the vice regent of Babylon. He's going to be driven out of office by the ambitious general Antigonus. Seleucus is going to flee to Egypt. Ptolemy and Seleucus were warriors together under Alexander. Seleucus goes to Ptolemy and says, basically, can you give me a job? He says, sure. He hires him. There's a battle that takes place. He joins Ptolemy's commanders. He effectively engineers the, the, the war against Antigonus in 301. Seleucus is handsomely rewarded by Ptolemy. He's given control over the entire region of Cappadocia, Phrygia, Upper Syria, Mesopotamia, the Euphrates Valley. And so when I'm talking about Galatia, Cappadocia, Phrygia, this is all of the areas that are going to comprise the Anatolian Peninsula, and it's going to be the place where in the book of Revelation, the, the seven churches are going to emerge. And so here's what happened according to the text. Ptolemy, the king of the south, is going to have a prince who's going to be greater and more powerful than him. Literally fulfilled. 
The next prophecy focuses on a princess in verse 6. And so in verse 6 it says, And at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north. Pause. The text says there's a daughter, not a son, not the king of the north, but the king of the south. It's laying it out in specific detail. The prophetic stage is now set for the children of these two kings. The children of the king of the south, Egypt, the children of the king of the north, Syria. Ptolemy II Philadelphus, he is the son of Ptolemy I, 285 to 247. The king of the south, Antiochus II, Theos, he's the king of the north. The king's daughter of the south is named Bernice. There's a temporary peace under Ptolemy II Philadelphus, which means he, he's the guy who loves his brother, and Seleucus Nicator. Eventually, Ptolemy abdicates the throne, gives the throne to Philadelphus, his son. He is the son of his second wife, Bernice. Now, it gets complicated because there's Bernice number one, and now there's Bernice number two. Again, this is like Hispanic families where every child who's a girl is named Maria. This is Maria Eleanor. This is Maria de los Angeles. This is Maria los Angeles en el cielo. This is Maria, you know, in other words, you name every single child after the Virgin Mary. And so they name every single person after that person that they adore. So they give birth to their daughter, who's Bernice number two. Not long after Antiochus I Soter becomes the Syrian king, war breaks out between Syria and Egypt. Now again, let me try to make this patent place telenovela as simple as possible. They decide in order for the war to end, Bernice II, the daughter of Egypt's King Ptolemy II, will be given in marriage to the Syrian king Antiochus II Theos. So far, so good? The problem, Antiochus II, Theos, he's already married to a girl named Laodicea. And by the way, if you've ever heard of the church at Laodicea, it's from her name. Or if you've ever heard of the Laodiceans. Laodicea isn't just any girl. She's the daughter of Seleucus Nicator I. So in order for this deal to go through, he has to divorce and banish his wife, number one, and then marry wife, number two. The progeny from wife, number two, between Antiochus II, Theos, and Bernice II, are tasked with ruling the Syrian kingdom. That's the agreement in verse 6. There's another problem. Laodicea's not cool with the arrangement. Again, she's like a Hispanic wife. Here, hold my baby. We're going to fight. And she does fight. She fights. Laodicea has Bernice killed and her ex-husband killed and their child killed. Scholars are divided whether Laodicea had them killed for revenge, for jealousy, to prevent a Syrian civil war, doesn't matter. She makes sure they're dead. And they are dead. Ptolemy III, Eurgetes, brother of Bernice, 
son of Ptolemy II, sister to Bernice, not cool. He is going to avenge his sister's death and his nephew's death. So it says, but from a branch of her roots, what is her roots? Ptolemy. Her father has another son. One shall arise in his place. That's Ptolemy III, Eurgetes. Now, Eurgetes in the Greek language means benefactor. For those of you who grew up in my generation, there was a cartoon. It was called Dudley Do-Right. And they called Dudley Do-Right because he always did what was... That's what this guy's name means. He is Ptolemy Do-Right. He is going to do what's right. He's going to avenge his sister and his nephew. He raises an army. He attacks and conquers Syria. He successfully captures the capitals of Antioch on the Orontes River and Seleucia, that's Seleucia Pieria in Syria. And the reason why you have to differentiate them, it's because like Imagine there's a Columbus, Ohio, and there's a Columbus, Maine, and there's a Columbus, Washington. A lot of places have the city Columbus in different places. And so a lot of places had the same name. So you have to recognize it by region. So, Ptolemy III is going to deal with them and prevail, verse 7, but from the branch... He enters the fortress of the king of the north and he deals with them and prevails. How does he deal with them? He captures Laodicea. He has her killed. He has her son, Seleucus II, Callinicus, left holding the bag. That means her son is now going to have to answer for all of the wickedness that his mother prompted. Verse 8, And he shall carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So Ptolemy III will plunder the wealth of Syria. He'll take gold statues. He'll take the representations of the gods and goddesses. Now again, the prophecy implies that that there's not only the acquisition of the gods and goddesses, they're going to take them because in that ancient culture, if you could secure the gods and goddesses, that means your gods and goddesses were more powerful than their gods and goddesses. So the armies took Babylon. They captured most of the Syrian empire. They marched east to India. They amassed 4,000 talents of gold and 40,000 thousand talents of silver. Some of it still remains to this day in the form of coins that Ptolemy minted in order to honor his subjugation and victory. A talent was typically <clears throat> a weight. There were 2,500 molten idols in sacred vessels. Ptolemy III signs a truth Truce with Seleucus II Callinicus. By the way, Callinicus is a Greek word which means I'm the triumphant one. Now, this is kind of a sad name. You know, imagine you're LA in the Super Bowl, they lose 
to the patriots, and they call themselves the triumphant ones. And you go, you usually don't call the loser the triumphant one. He assumes the name of the triumphant one, even though he's the loser. Verse 9, also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. And that one simple statement, the foolish Syrian king, that's our friend Seleucus II, Callinicus, he says, you know what? I've been living a life of defeat and humiliation. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise an army. I'm going to build a navy. He raises an army. He builds a navy. He sets sail for Egypt. And a supernatural freak storm destroys his navy. But it was just a coincidence, right? And the text is literally literally fulfilled. So, verse 10. However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to the fortress and stir up strife. Seleucus II, Callinicus, dies of injuries that he sustains in war. How? He falls off his horse. He breaks his neck. In history, his sons are Seleucus number two and Seleucus number three, Carinus. And then Antiochus the third, Magus, which means the great. I know it sounds like maggot, but it just means big. They would continue their father's plans of revenge and conquest. They will attack Phoenicia, which is still under Egyptian control. They will attack Palestine under Egyptian control. They, and, and, and then the sons are determined to take the Egyptian fortress, bring glory back to Syria. And you have to understand something. The fortified city of Seleucia is only 16 miles from Antioch. The Egyptians have a garrison there in Seleucia. I can't, let me help you understand what that would mean. That would be like, imagine Mexico has a garrison at the Alamo. And you go, unacceptable. The Mexicans say, we won the war. And you go, you know what? You need to get over it because the Alamo belongs to Texas. And you're not going to get it. Imagine the British build a garrison in New Orleans. Imagine there's a Saudi garrison in New Jersey. Because they destroyed the Twin Towers. That feeling that you're feeling in your heart right now, that's what they're feeling. And so they go to war. They go to war. It says in verse 11, And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. The king of Egypt at this point, Ptolemy number four. He's going to muster an army. He's going to go fight against Antiochus number three of Syria. Antiochus number three, or the great, is known to have waged at least two campaigns against Egypt. In the first, he is defeated and he's forced to cede the realm of Palestine. That's all of the Galilee and Judea to the Egyptians. And that's why this is going to become so important. Because the city of Jerusalem is deeply divided. In the city of Jerusalem, there are people who identify with the Seleucids and the Syrians in the north. And there are people who identify with the Egyptians in the south. 
And because of this bitter, divided city, they're going to have to make some adjustments. Ptolemy is going to defeat the king of Syria. The prophecy literally fulfilled. Now, this is where we're going to have to stop. But I'm going to just give you a brief peek at next week. The continued rise and eventual fall of Antiochus III is going to be continued in verses 15 through 20. He's going to capture a fortified Egyptian city. He's going to gain control over the Galilee, over Judea, over Palestine. No one is going to be able to stand against him. He's going to be free to do what he wants. He's going to concoct a plan to overthrow the entire Egyptian kingdom. He is going to, in his mind, think, hmm, let's plan another marriage. This time, he's going to give his daughter, Cleopatra, to marry Ptolemy. But he's going to do it in order to bring down the dynasty of his enemy. But something's going to happen. Cleopatra is going to betray her father. She's going to encourage Ptolemy. And they're going to form an alliance with Rome. And as we hurl towards the future, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. And Daniel, in the 5th century B.C., is given the game plan just like I gave it to you. This is what's going to happen in the 5th century, the 4th century, the 3rd century, the 2nd century. Now when you read the book of Revelation and you go, what does it mean? How am I to understand what I'm reading? It makes me feel secure in my job when you don't know. <laughs> so you guys ready? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, there's great comfort in knowing that what the Bible says is true. There's great comfort in knowing that what the Bible says about us is true and about sin is true and about the Savior Jesus is true. What the Bible says about heaven and hell is true and what the Bible says about life and death and a future resurrection is true. Lord, we pray that you would comfort our hearts. That when we open up this Bible and we read its words, even though there's some things very difficult to understand, that you've given us a roadmap, a way of thinking about the past and the future. Lord, I pray for everyone who's listening to this message that, Lord, I've made it at least somewhat accessible. In Jesus' name, amen.